Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will teach us from Genesis how Sarah fell into an irrational and jealous rage against Abraham over Hagar and his reaction to it. This message is available for free download at friendshipwithgod.org or on iTunes. We'd like to thank you for listening to the Friendship with God radio program. Please support this program continuing on your station by going to friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. You can donate online or you can call us now or after the program at 1-800-247-3051. That's 1-800-247-3051. And again, you also help to support Jewish evangelism through Israel Restoration Ministries as they give a matching donation to every donation that you give to the Friendship with God radio program, which helps to lead lost Jewish people to the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. So again, friendshipwithgod.org or one 800 247-3051. Now here's Tom Cantor as we study the life of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar from the book of Genesis. Okay, turning your Bibles to Genesis chapter 16. And yeah, we'll get ready to start our class here. And so, Genesis 16. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word this morning. We thank you, Lord, that you saw the need that we have for a light for our path, Lord. You saw this need. You saw the need that we had for a light, Lord, for our feet, a lamp for our feet. We thank you, Lord, that seeing this need, you gave us just what we needed in the Bible today. And so we pray, Lord, help us to use your Bible in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, okay, Genesis chapter 16, if you follow along here, and I'll just start for context in Genesis 16 and start at verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, bare him no children, and she had a handmaid, an Egyptian, whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said unto Abram, Behold, now the Lord hath restrained me from hearing. I pray thee, go in unto my maid. It may be that I may obtain children by her. Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarai, and Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, after Abram had ten years in the land of Canaan, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife. And he went in unto Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her eyes. And Sarai said unto Abram, My wrong be upon thee. I have given my maid into thy bosom. And when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between me and thee. But Abram said unto Sarai, Behold, thy maid is in thy hand. Do to her as it pleases thee. And when Sarai dealt hardly with her, she fled from her face. And the angel of the Lord found her by a fountain in the water, in the wilderness, by the fountain, in the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, whence camest thou, and whither wilt thou go? And she said, I flee from the face of my mistress Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Return to thy mistress, and submit thyself under her hands. That's as far as we'll read. Now, in our last lesson, you remember how we saw this great wrong that Sarah brought on this, her household and on Abraham. And in verse 1, we saw Sarah was under pressure of her barrenness with the word Sarai, Abram's wife, bear him no children. In verse 1, we saw Sarah's temptation to use the subservient, fertile maid that she had with the words, and she had a handmaid, an Egyptian, whose name was Hagar. In verse 2, we saw Sarah justifying her compromise, justifying what she had done 
by blaming God with the words, Behold, now the Lord hath restrained me from bearing. In verse 2, we saw Sarai putting pressure on Abraham with the words, I pray thee, go in unto my maid. In verse 2, we saw Sarah only thinking of herself in what she was doing when she used the words, It may be that I may obtain children by her. In verse 2, we saw Abraham bending to Sarah's pressure with the words, and Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarai. In verse 3, we saw Sarah should have had a second thought, and she should have repented and turned around, but unfortunately, we saw Sarah in verse 3 push through the thought of her sin unto to become a reality with the words, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife. And then in verse 4, we saw when Abram should have also had the second thought. That was his opportunity to stop the train from going forward. But unfortunately, he allowed himself to be pushed into this sin with the words, and he went in unto Hagar, and she conceived. So those are really hard words for us to read. They're difficult words to read. And they're sad words for us to read as we read about what happened in Abraham's house. These are words of Sarah ruining her privileged position of being Abraham's only wife. These are words of Abraham turning his back on God's promise that God would give him a son as a result of his union with his wife Sarah. These were words of that threatened the destruction Not only of the relationship between Abraham and Sarah, but there's a destruction of their family and their home. These are hard words. And now the consequences of what happened here, the consequences of what Sarah and Abraham did will plague their home for all of their days on earth. It'll be a plague and even go on beyond that until they die. And so if we could grab the hands of the clock and turn them back, We'd do that. We'd say, we never wanted this to happen. This was a tragedy. This was a disaster. This was a catastrophe. But unfortunately, we can't do that, and it happened. And so from here on out, the chapter is going to tell us about the consequences of this sin that involves so many. And in verse 4, we saw the disaster of the result in that it, things didn't go according to Sarah's plan. And the result was not what Sarah had planned. Because the plan that Sarah had was for Hagar to remain submissive. That was her plan, but it didn't happen that way. And that's given to us in the words, when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her eyes. Hagar despised Sarah. In verse 5, we saw how Sarah then blamed her husband. Don't ask me how she came up with that. But she blamed her husband for this disastrous results when Sarah said unto Abram, My wrong be upon thee. I have given my maid into thy bosom. And when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her eyes. So in verse 5, we see how Sarah calls on God to justify her and put all the blame on Abraham with the word judge between me and thee. And when Abraham heard those words, when she heard those words, 
the Lord judge between me and thee. We can just imagine how poor Abraham sat down and he said to himself, you know, my wife told me what she wanted me to do. My wife pressured me to do what she wanted me to do. I did exactly what my wife wanted me to do. And even though I did exactly what my wife told me to do, it all went wrong and somehow it's all my fault. (laughs) So somehow it's all my fault. Okay. So I did exactly what I was told to do by my wife. Somehow it's all my fault. And all the married men said, amen. (laughs) Been there, done that, right? So we did exactly what our wives told us to do. It all goes wrong. It's all our fault. All right. Now, we wonder, what was Sarah thinking? What was in her mind? Because this is a very serious argument. It's a very serious challenge that's come now. It's a very serious rift that's come between Sarah and Abraham. And when we look very carefully at what Sarah said to Abraham and how Abraham responded, we see that there's a little bit more than just what's on the surface here. Because Sarah is leveling to Abraham a very serious accusation. We ask ourselves the questions, what exactly is Sarah saying to Abraham in verse 4? And from verse 5, which is Abraham's response, we ask the question, what has Abraham heard Sarah say to him? So when we look at verse 4, we see that Sarah is blaming Abraham And when she says, my wrong be upon thee, it's all your fault. And so Sarah is saying to Abraham that it all went wrong because of Abraham. Now, Abraham did something wrong that made Sarah's plan go wrong. So the question is, what did Abraham do wrong? And Sarah said to Abraham, she said this, she said, I have given my maid into thy bosom, And when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her eyes. And it all went wrong when Hagar despised Sarah. See, that was all the thing that went wrong. And Sarah is accusing Abraham of causing Hagar to despise Sarah. Did you see what I'm trying to say? I'm trying to say that Hagar despised Sarah. And Sarah is accusing Abraham. It's Abraham's fault that Hagar despised Sarah. See, that's the issue. That's what's on the table here. That's what's saying. Sarah is saying to Abraham, you were only supposed to make a baby, but instead you made a lover. That's what's on the table here. You were only supposed to sire a child, but instead you fell in love with Hagar. That's what's being said here. So what is this? Sarah is jealous. Sarah is, Sarah is not rational. But jealousy is not rational. And that's what it means when it says in Proverbs 6.33, jealousy is the rage. And Sarah's words are hot with jealousy. And jealousy is cruel. Jealousy has cruelty. That's what it means when it says in Song of Solomon 8.6, love is as strong as death and jealousy is cruelty as the grave. It's cruel as the grave. And so what we see here in Sarah is a woman who is irrational, she's jealous, she's in a rage against Abraham, and she's calling on God to judge Abraham. That's serious. And so Sarah is cruel. She's being as cruel as the grave against Abraham, and she calls on God to bring down his wrath on Abraham. And when Hagar despised Sarah, Sarah knew 
that Abraham could see that Hagar was not submitting herself to Sarah. See, Sarah saw, it was obvious to Sarah, that Hagar was despising her. Hagar was not submitting herself to Sarah. But Sarah had her eye on Abraham. And so when Sarah saw that Abraham was indifferent to the way that Hagar was treating her, Abraham was indifferent about Hagar despising Sarah, then seeing Abraham's indifference here to Hagar's treatment of Sarah, it only fueled Sarah's suspicion that Abraham has feelings for Hagar. And so seeing how Abraham was not up in arms about how Hagar was treating his wife Sarah, this only heated up Sarah's jealousy. It just ignited the fires of passion inside of Sarah. So Sarah's incensed. She's just incensed in a rage over Abraham's indifference for how Sarah is being treated by Hagar. And so now Sarah decides to, you know, Abraham says, no, no, I don't, I'm not in love with her. I don't have any feelings over her. No, it's not true. So Sarah decides to put Abraham to the test, to prove, because she says, okay, I'll prove you are in love with Hagar. I'll prove it. And so Sarah seems to be saying to Abraham here, I'll prove you're in love with Hagar. I'll be harsh with Hagar, and you'll step in and you'll defend her because you have feelings for her. And you'll step in, you'll protect Hagar. And that will prove what I'm suspicious of. You're in love with her, with this young Egyptian. So this was the challenge. This is what's behind the scenes here. So Abraham says to his wife, no, I'm not in love with Hagar. I have no feelings at all. And in essence, Abraham is saying, I'll prove it to you. So now in verse 6, Abraham says, he steps back, takes his hands back, says, Behold, thy maid, thy maid, not my wife, not my lover, thy maid is in thy hand, you do to her as it pleaseth thee, and I could not care less. So here we see Abraham trying to keep peace. It's a hard thing. It's very, very difficult. But he's trying to keep peace in the home. He's trying to keep his home, his family intact. He's trying to keep his relationship together with Sarah. And what we see him doing here, and we can learn a great lesson when it comes to uh, marital harmony, because you talk about a marital problem here. This is a problem, as any adultery is a problem in a marriage. But Abraham has been challenged with a serious accusation, and tempers have flared, and now Abraham stands at this crossroads of choice. I mean, either Abraham can choose to vent his anger that's all welled up in him and defend himself with Sarah, or he can be wise and recognize that his relationship with Sarah is on the line here. And it depends upon how he responds in this situation. So Abraham could step back and he could recognize the old devil is pounding on my marriage with Sarah. He's pounding on my marriage. And he can say, now, I can fall into his trap, into the devil's trap, and just potentiate, just make this all the worse, or I can do the tough thing, I can eat humble pie, I cannot go down the road of escalating this difference. Instead, I can go down the road of de-escalation, de-escalating. And that's what we see him doing here. We see him doing what Proverbs 15.1 says, a soft answer turneth away wrath. But grievous words stir up anger. So he could have fired back with Sarah grievous words and raised the fight to one higher level. 
But that's not what we see Abraham doing here. Instead, we see Abraham speaking a soft answer to Sarah. And he says, even though Hagar is carrying my baby, I don't care about Hagar. Even though Hagar is carrying my baby, Hagar is your maid, she's in your hand. Even though Hagar is carrying my baby, it's all up to you. I'm bowing out of this. You do what you want with Hagar. And even though Hagar is carrying my baby, I will not intervene to stop you in whatever you decide you want to do with Hagar. Well, that's pretty rough on Abraham. This is a tough situation. He's torn up emotionally. Tom, today you talked about the tough situation that Abraham was facing and how Sarah said, I pray thee, go in unto my maid. She was beseeching and provoking him to do it. Prayer, in a more biblical way, should be made in that same fervent and passionate manner back to God. Can you give us another Old Testament example of prayer that we can study today? You know, everything in the Old Testament is there for our benefit. It is is written so that we can learn. And what God told Moses about the mercy seat is very instructive to us when it comes to the matter of our praying to God. We should recognize through the illustration, through the analogy, through God's object lesson of the mercy seat, the importance as it applies to us for prayer. Now, what he said in Exodus 25, 22 was God made it very, very clear to Moses when he said, And there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. God said, I have a place for you, Moses. That place where you and I are going to meet is going to be at the top of the ark, the lid covering, called the mercy seat. And he said, I'll not only meet with you there, I will commune with you. You know, there's a difference in our time with God between just meeting with God and then communing with God. When you just go to meet with God without communing, it's like God would say to you, would say to you, would say to me, what's your rush? Sit down, unpack, let's spend time together. That's communing. So he said, this is not just going to be a rush in, let me have my commandments that I'm going to go tell the children of Israel, God. God said, no, no, no. This is going to be a time when you and I are going to spend quality time together, and that's going to be the time of communing with each other. So the first thing we understand is that this is a place where he will not only meet with us, but also commune with us. And when it says the mercy seat, above the mercy seat, we know that that's the place where on the four corners of that lid cover, that mercy seat, was applied the blood, the blood which speaks of the peace of God that we have through the blood of his cross. And then it says that this is from between the two cherubims. These were the two angels that God dispatched to protect the place. So in other words, God is saying this is an important place. It's a place where you will dwell and we will both look and dwell 
on the on the meaning and the power of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ to bring about the peace with God, the peace between us, to bring about the reconciliation between us. And this is so important. I will do what it takes to protect your meeting time with me, as symbolized by these two cherubims that will be over this meeting place. So these are the things that we need to keep in mind as we come to have our own personal prayer time and quiet time with God. Number one, that God wants to not only that we should show up, but that we should commune with him, that we should, we should say, Lord, you are the desire of my heart. There's none upon earth that I desire beside you. And really to unload our hearts before him and to hear the heart of God speak to us through his word. We should realize that the whole basis of our privilege to be able to do this is because of the cross, because of the blood of his cross, which is there above the mercy seat. And we should realize this is so important to God that he's put two cherubim, so to speak, is to say that this is an important thing that we are doing together. The mercy seat was such an amazing illustration. Thanks for that, Tom. Now, shifting back to Abraham's home life, how it was a wreck. It was terrible today as we studied the book of Genesis, how Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar had a horrible home life. But we know that God will purpose all of the bad things in our lives for good, despite us and despite our decisions. But I was thinking about hell and what a horrible place that will be. Can you tell our listeners what the real purpose of hell is, according to the scriptures? Yeah, it's true. There isn't anything that God does that he does not have a purpose. And God created hell. And so God has a purpose for hell. So it's very, very appropriate for us to ask the question, what is God's purpose for hell? And we are given the insight to this in Matthew twenty five forty one, where the Lord Jesus Christ said that he will say to those on his left hand, he said, then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, depart from me, ye cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So when he said those words, that everlasting fire, of course referring to hell, is a place that's been prepared for the devil and his angels, right away we get the understanding of what God's purpose is when he created hell. He created a place, or prepared, as it says, a place for the devil and his angels, those who tried to dethrone him, those who tried to usurp him, those who said, the devil said that he would set his throne above God. And so he prepared a place for the devil and his angels called hell of everlasting fire. What's so important to note here is that God did not prepare this place for man. This place was prepared for the devil and his angels. What earth is, earth is a stage of a contest for the souls of men between God and the devil. And when men choose to side with the devil and go with the devil, then it's against God's desires, but they end up in hell. They end up in the place that's prepared for the devil as angels. But if man will yield himself to God, will follow God, will obey God, will even when God says, I know you've sinned, but I have prepared for you the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ as a place of safety. I've prepared for you salvation. Go. And when man goes in the way that God has prescribed for his salvation, he doesn't end up in the place that 
that was prepared for the devil and his angels. He ends up in the place that was prepared for man, which is heaven. But it's so important to see that when man ends up in hell, he had to fight his way into it. He had to climb over every fence that God put in his way not to go there. He had to disregard every red blinking light saying, wrong way, don't go this way. God is against you going this way. He has to literally fight his way in in a defiance against God as if to say, I'll show you, God, that I can go to hell. And God says, yes, I guess you can. And so that's what actually happens to man. But what's so important to see is that God's purpose for hell was never prepared. It was was to never be the place prepared for man. It was always the place prepared for the devil and his angels. Thank you for joining Tom Cantor and the Friendship with God radio program today. Now, do you have a lost Jewish friend that you'd like to reach with the gospel? Tom Cantor and Israel Restoration Ministries would like to help you to reach them with a free gift of Tom Cantor's life story on DVD and a booklet form. We'd like to send that to your lost Jewish friend or give that to you to give to them so that you can reach them. Whether it's a friend, coworker, family member, or an acquaintance, anyone that's Jewish, all you need to do is go to friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org and fill out the online form. We'll send that free gift to your Jewish friend or to you to give to them. You can also sign up at friendshipwithgod.org for Tom Cantor's daily devotional verse. It'll come to your phone or to your email, and you can sign up for that at friendshipwithgod.org, also for your free gift for a lost Jewish friend. Now, our resource this month is the Passover DVD teaching from Tom Cantor on Exodus 12 and Isaiah 53. It's an amazing teaching on the Passover, as well as the personal relevance of the Lord Jesus Christ in all of our lives today. It's a great gift to give a Christian or unbeliever at Easter or Passover time, and a great gift to give a Jewish person who may be searching for the truth and evidence of the Scriptures. So to get this teaching from Tom Cantor on the Passover from Exodus 12 and Isaiah 53, call us today with a donation of $20 or more, and we'll send you this powerful DVD teaching from Tom Cantor and the Passover, 1-800-247-3051, 1-800-247-3051. Again, that's one 800 247 3051, or you can go to friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org, order it online through our bookstore, or again, 1-800-247-3051.